Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, interdisciplinary conversations about new works in the broad world of business research. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. If you like what you hear today, please consider subscribing to the podcast or sharing with others who might like it too. And if you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Our guests today are Lindsay Gallo, Assistant Professor of Accounting at the University of Michigan, and Kendall Lynch, a PhD candidate in accounting, also at the University of Michigan. We'll be discussing their new article, Out of Sight, Out of Mind, the Role of the Government-Appointed Corporate Monitor, which is forthcoming in the Journal of Accounting Research, in which they co-authored with Remy Tomey of the University of Chicago. Lindsay, Kendall, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Hi, Andrew. It's great to be here. Hi, thanks for having us. Lindsay, Kendall, I'm really excited about this paper because both as a lawyer in practice and now as a law professor, I spend a lot of time thinking about corporate monitors. And so this was a really wonderful empirical examination of the role of monitors in corporate enforcement actions. Before we get into the bulk of your research, though, I wondered if you could just introduce to the listeners just what is a corporate monitor? What is its role? When does a corporation need a monitor, or we might even think of it as a minder in some respects? Who's the monitor responsible to? Does it work for the corporation or for somebody else? Who pays the monitor? And does the monitor embed itself within an organization, within a big business, or does it serve as a visiting inspector? The corporate monitor, in order to explain what it is, I think it's good to start at the beginning when a corporation initially commits some kind of criminal misconduct. And the Department of Justice is then deciding how to move forward. They can indict the firm, in which case often we see the case end in a plea agreement. That's the most common outcome. But for large public corporations, the DOJ seems to opt for deferred or non-prosecution agreements, which are contractual agreements that they enter into with the company in an effort to remediate and prevent the company from continued misconduct. And the reason for that is if you think about what a corporation is, it's a collection of people. And so it's very difficult to punish a large public company without there being a lot of collateral damage and harm to employees and other stakeholders who didn't do anything wrong. And so the DOJ is trying to balance this idea of punishment with also not creating a lot of burden on innocent parties. And so that's where these deferred and non-prosecution agreements come in. And these will have a host of clauses, if you will, that will tell the company what they have to do in order to fulfill the requirements of these agreements, things like appointing a compliance officer, changing the number of independent directors on the board, pulling out of certain operations or locations that they operate in. And one aspect of these deferred and non-prosecution agreements that sometimes the DOJ includes is one of these external corporate monitors. And that's where our paper comes in. These monitors are tasked with a wide array of responsibilities. So sometimes they come in and have a very clear objective of what they're supposed to do. Sometimes They're given a lot more leeway in terms of monitoring the firm's behavior. But ultimately, I think it comes down to they're there to make sure that the compliance changes in the deferred or non-prosecution agreement are actually made adequately so that the firm doesn't become a repeat offender. The firm can suggest monitors, but ultimately the DOJ is going to choose the monitor at the end of the day. And the monitor is going to report back to the DOJ on some regular schedule. 
In terms of who pays for the monitor and the monitor's team, that would be the company. So this can be expensive for the company. And the monitor will often be on site a lot of the time with their team, just making sure that these changes take place. It's an interesting role. It's not the same as an auditor because an auditor is obviously paid for by the company and hired by the company, but it is external to the company, the monitor and their team. In terms of when it's required, this really changes a lot over time. Historically, there hasn't been a lot of explicit information provided by the DOJ of when exactly a monitor is going to be imposed. More recently, Lisa Monaco, as Deputy Attorney General, has issued a series of memos that is trying to make it more clear when a monitor might be imposed. So I think there's a little bit more direction now than there has been in the past in terms of when we might see one of these corporate monitors imposed as part of a deferred or non-prosecution agreement. When the DOJ enters into one of these non-prosecution or deferred prosecution agreements with a big company, it has various goals in some of the different provisions that you've talked about. For example, if there's a particular business unit that's causing a lot of problems, perhaps you need to divest yourself from that business unit or shut it down. If you have certain identifiable compliance problems, perhaps you need to implement new compliance programs or internal controls that will address those problems. And the monitor is part of that. Could you talk a little bit about what the DOJ's goal is when it does decide that a monitor should be imposed? What effect is a monitor supposed to achieve? And what difference does it make whether the monitor is embedded with the organization day to day versus serves a a more visitorial type of function? I think Lindsay actually covered a lot of this pretty well. She mentioned that corporations are collections of individuals. And so the goal with these non and deferred prosecution agreements isn't retribution, it's reform. And so the main goal here is that the DOJ is going to help this company with this agreement reduce recidivism. And the monitor, as you just mentioned, plays a large role in that. They are there to make sure that this company has adopted and effectively implemented these changes, particularly the ethics and compliance changes that the DOJ is requiring. And they're there to help the firm address the risk of recurrence of this misconduct. And why it makes such a big difference for these firms, I think one example that I want to talk about is Siemens. So Siemens in the mid-2000s was caught violating the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act pretty severely. They had people taking briefcases of cash all over the world. They received a monitor as part of their settlement with the DOJ. And this monitor actually had an office on site for the duration of their agreement. And now they're regarded as one of the golden children of ethics and compliance, or at least this is what I've heard from some former members of the DOJ. And so I think that example points a lot to what can be the difference between having this person on site, working with you day to day, getting to know your people, becoming more of a an embedded individual in the organization, understanding how it works and how might they effectively implement the terms of the agreement. I really appreciate that background on the role of the monitor in corporate enforcement. And I'd like to turn now maybe to your article and your contribution to this field. Can you talk about the research questions that set out to answer in this study and what motivated those questions? I have someone very close to me in my life who was working for a company, and I will not name, that actually had a corporate monitor on site. I heard a lot about what the monitor was doing, and I had never heard of this before. And it surprised me because 
when we think about how firms choose their governance structure, I didn't have in mind that there could be someone appointed by the DOJ that was on site helping the company change their compliance program, for example. I became really interested in this type of corporate monitor. And when I started looking into it, I read a lot about what the monitor was supposed to be doing. I read the agreements, but it wasn't clear to me that anyone had ever looked at the effectiveness of the monitor. And when we think about why they're appointed in the first place, as Kendall stated earlier, they're there to reform the company, to make sure that the company doesn't become a repeat violator. We decided through this paper that we could potentially study whether these monitors were effective in that mandate to reduce recidivism. That's really our chief research question. Does the corporate monitor ultimately reduce future misconduct? When I was looking into corporate monitors, the deputy attorney general will often issue memos on various topics and they'll touch on corporate monitors because this is a really significant burden for companies that enter into deferred and non-prosecution agreements. They certainly do not want a DOJ appointed corporate monitor embedded on site watching them. There's a lot of back and forth on and different preferences by administration and deputy attorney general with respect to whether they should be imposing monitors, the frequency with which they should be doing it, what are the reasons for imposing these monitors. So it all seemed a little ad hoc. There wasn't a clear list of if this, then monitor. And so we thought it would be even more important to understand, is there something systematic we can point out as to when these monitors are appointed and then ultimately if they're successful or not? When we began this project, there was a memo that came out and said, monitors should be rare and we're going to pull back on appointing monitors. And we were sitting there thinking, as Lindsay mentioned, we don't really understand the effectiveness of these tools within an agreement. So we set out to understand that. This is a really important empirical question, just how effective are these monitors? Because they are, as you say, incredibly costly for a firm, both in direct costs, monitors tend to be lawyers and high-priced lawyers at that who have teams of high-priced lawyers and consultants and accountants and other professionals working with them. And then there's indirect disruptions perhaps that a firm can experience if they have an internal monitor, especially somebody who is embedded. So this is a real cost and we want to make sure that we are getting as a society, as a public, our money's worth in essence in terms of improvement in corporate compliance. So I want to come back to that really important empirical point in just a minute. But before we get there, I'd like to hear a little bit about how you get to some of the conclusions in the paper. What data did you use? Could you talk a little bit about your research strategy? First, I want to thank Brandon Garrett and John Ashley, who maintain the Corporate Prosecution Registry, which makes it very easy to get data on these deferred and non-prosecution agreements. So we started there and were able to collect the actual text of the agreements, for the most part, from that database. And then we use the Good Jobs First Violation Tracker to investigate corporate misconduct, to measure corporate misconduct, both before and after the violation that leads to the deferred and non-prosecution agreement. And we collect all kinds of governance variables, different attributes of the firm. These are all public companies, so we can access their financial statements, for example. These are all firms with deferred and non-prosecution agreements, but we want to match firms that are assigned a monitor to firms that are not assigned a monitor, but that are otherwise similar in terms of violation, in terms of other attributes of the deferred and non-prosecution agreement. And then we're able to see 
how the violations trend for the firms that are assigned a monitor versus the firms that are not assigned a monitor. And again, we mapped on attributes that predict being assigned a monitor. So we want to sort of control for these differences that drive getting a monitor while we're looking at future violations. We match on the actual text of the deferred or non-prosecution agreement. So we really want to make sure that we're capturing the effect of the monitor itself. We also, when we're thinking about the mechanism through which a monitor may or may not be effective, we look to what the DOJ says the goal is. And partly they're trying to change the ethics and compliance norms at the firm. So you really have to change the firm's sort of feelings around ethics and compliance. And we use a machine learning algorithm and we look at the disclosures made by firms to measure how much their ethics and compliance norms change after the monitor is imposed to try and get at the mechanism through which this might work. From that study, what were some of your key findings? Are monitors appointed in these kinds of cases? Are they working? Are they doing what we would hope they might do? Are they doing something different? DOJ has been doing this for a number of decades now. How well have these monitors worked out? So our results are a little mixed, and I have to say we were a bit surprised by them. What we're finding is that these monitors do seem to be associated with an 18 to 25% reduction in violations but that's only when the monitor is actually on site during the period of the deferred or non-prosecution agreement. And then once that ends, we find that the violations go back to essentially the same level as prior to the agreement. Those results are robust to several different ways of matching the firms. We find that result pretty consistently across any type of matching scheme. And then in terms of the ethics and compliance norms, you would expect, okay, the violations are decreasing while the monitor is on site, but then they're going back to quote unquote normal levels once the monitor departs. So you would expect something similar to happen with the ethics and compliance norms. And that's what we do find. There is this temporary improvement in ethics and compliance norms at the firm while the monitor is there, but then that goes back to prior levels once the monitor departs. I think it's worth mentioning that the monitor is typically on site, I think, around three years is the average. Is that right? Yeah, 30 months is the average. So they're there for quite a while. And we were surprised that in that time, they can make this type of change where we can actually see this decrease in violations, but it doesn't last. And in particular, that they change these ethics and compliance norms, which we're measuring. The firms are talking about their ethics and compliance programs more They're using that language in their disclosures, but that is also temporary. I think we were surprised just based on how long the monitor is on site that ultimately they can't create this lasting change that they're really there to do. I will say in a later part of the paper, we do look at characteristics of the monitor themselves. And what we find is that there seem to be more persistent effects. The monitor has prior experience serving as a monitor or if they're there for longer. So the longer they're there, the more likely the change is to be persistent. If I'm Lisa Monaco or whoever her eventual successors are as Deputy Attorney General, thinking about at a broad level, the department's policy around when monitors should be imposed, whether they should be imposed for how long, all of those details, what the DOJ's monitor policy is and ought to be, or if I'm a U.S. attorney or line prosecutor trying to decide whether a monitorship is appropriate in a given circumstance, how should I be reading and thinking about your study? We're not here to tell 
the Department of Justice when to impose or not impose corporate monitors. We think they're much better positioned to do that. However, what we hope to provide them is, or at least our goal was to give them this empirical evidence on what the costs and benefits of monitors are. Not all encompassing, but to give them a sense of when you're imposing these really costly stipulations of non or deferred prosecution agreement, it's really important to understand what the benefits are. And we're hoping that our study provides empirical evidence that points to it seems like in some instances, these monitors are not serving their intended purpose. However, in others, they might be. So I mentioned earlier, the instances in which monitors do seem to have a persistent effect is when they have this prior experience or when they're there for longer. What the DOJ uses that information for, I think, is up to them. However, it's definitely an empirical data point for them to use. I think the Monaco memo, which was issued last year, and then in March, there's a revised memo on the selection of monitors that comes out. And I think they're just being a lot more explicit in terms of when they believe a monitor might make sense. And I think this is a really good direction to take. In particular, they're highlighting how they're going to think about the selection of monitors. And because we do find that the characteristics matter, I think this is really important. I also think that our results would show that it acts through the ethics and compliance norms is consistent with how the DOJ thinks monitors work. So I think that's a really positive thing. And now the question is, how can we help monitors who do seem in the short term to be able to make these ethics and compliance changes? What do we do to make long lasting changes to corporate culture? which is outside the scope of our paper, but plenty of people have thought about. And maybe that's a direction that the DOJ could take in terms of making the monitor more effective in the long term. And we think we're just providing another source of information to the DOJ as they continue to think about when monitors would be appropriate. It's useful. Kendall pointed out that when we started the project, there was a memo that came out that basically said monitors should be rare. And it's worth mentioning that in the Monaco memo in September, the DOJ explicitly says, we're not biased against monitors and we're not biased towards monitors. We want to use monitors when they make the most sense. And so I think this is an administration that's actively thinking about how to improve this compliance tool that they have. Are there any closing thoughts or key takeaways you'd like listeners to have from this interview or from the paper? When we think about corporate misconduct, If you look at some metrics, corporate misconduct has increased over time. So this is a really important issue and research that helps us understand how do we address corporate misconduct before and after it happens. So our paper is, okay, the misconduct has occurred. What do we do to make sure it doesn't happen again? But I think this is a really fruitful and important area that people can come in and research and really provide a lot of information to regulators on how to address corporate misconduct, again, both before and after it happens. In particular, this is a time when companies are thinking a lot about how to make their compliance programs more robust. So I think more research into what it means to have effective compliance will really add a lot to our understanding of how firms operate, how firms become ethical. I really hope to see more studies in this area. Our guests today have been Lindsay Gallo, Assistant Professor of Accounting at the University of Michigan, and Kendall Lynch, a PhD candidate in accounting also at the University of Michigan. We've been discussing their new article, Out of Sight, Out of Mind, The Role of the Government-Appointed Corporate Monitor, which is forthcoming in the Journal of Accounting Research, which they co-authored with Remy Tomey of the University of Chicago. I'll add a link to the article in the show notes for the episode. 
Lindsay, Kindle, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you so much for having us. Thanks for having us. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app, or let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. Andrew Jennings.